This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out watchcityresearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. I'm joined this week by Erin Malone, who wrote the chapter, Follow These Principles of Gestalt for Better UX. Welcome, Erin. Hey, Dan. How are you? All right. Thank you for joining the podcast. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your UX journey? Sure. I would say I got started in UX before it was UX. I was a print designer. I was working in advertising and I decided to go back to grad school. And during the time I was in grad school, I discovered this thing called HyperCard. And I wanted to do my master's thesis in that tool because I had a variety of media. I had video, I had sound, I had, uh, I was doing it on a series of magazines. It was a design history piece. So I had the magazines and, and um, still images. I did a full library science cataloging of the magazines for the for the Cary Library. I went to grad school at Rochester Institute of Technology. And so I hacked together what would now be called a new media um, degree and took classes in the computer science department and in computer graphics department and the digital photography. And then I was in graphic design and sort of put this together. And while I was in school, I started working at Kodak doing some touchscreen kiosk work. And I ended up working there after graduation for almost two years and moved out to the Bay Area here in San Francisco, where I'm based, to work on Adobe's first website. And that's when, that was in 1995, when the dot-com boom was just barely getting started. And we didn't know what we were doing. We were just designing things, throwing it up on the internet, getting feedback, making changes. There was no process. There was, you know, it was sort of a free-for-all. And through that time and then eventually moving to a startup and helping codify some of the the kinds of uh, processes that we do. And, and I'm a big one for making diagrams and maps and things like that to visualize how things work. And, and then just a lot of community engagement with peers to help define stuff. And so I've been working, I would say in this space since about 92. And, you know, so that's a long time. (laughs) And I've seen a lot of changes. I've seen it go from this sort of grassroots cowboy mentality to where uh, folks are writing books about how things work and what people need to know. And there's now degrees and university degrees and master's programs in, in the space. And it's a real, it's a real thing. It's a real field. And uh, I've been lucky enough to be along for the ride and kind of helping shepherd it. And, uh, and I'm still doing it. What was it like getting buy-in to UX in 95 and ensuring oh, that it was implemented? Well, when I was at Adobe, I was in a Marcom group and the website essentially was brochureware to promote mm-hmm. the application. So I wasn't working on applications. We were just, we were doing, we were, we were concerned with information architecture as opposed to the more robust interaction design, because it was really all about content. Yeah. When I moved to the startup, it was more interactive and I was the first designer in an engineering group. And I just worked with those the, those folks to 
you know, try things and, and they would build them and we would test. Well, we actually didn't do any user testing <laughs> that didn't exist yet. Right. Um, we started that about a year after I had, uh, had been working with this engineering team and it came down to building relationships, which is really mm -hmm. what it, it, it still is. It's about is, building yeah. relationships and building trust so that people trust you and respect the, the qualifications and the experience you have, but they have to trust you in order to believe in that and, and trust that and that you know what you're doing and that it's, it's built on experience or testing or data, you know, whatever. And if they don't trust you, they're not going to listen to you. Yeah. So yeah, it's really about those relationships. And it, it was tough because at one point we got bought and the company that bought us, so we were an engineering driven organization with design embedded in engineering. And I had this group of folks that I worked with that really trusted me. And I'd been working mm. with them for two years. And then we got merged with two other companies, one that was um, marketing driven. So advertising marketing driven and the other was news outlet people. So it was editorial um, and, and this was Alta Vista. So they bought, this was back in the like 99 CMGI bought us. They merged Alta Vista, the search engine, which was marketing driven because of paid search with zip two, which is where I was, which was engineering driven. And we were doing city guides, yellow pages, maps, directions, stuff. Mm -hmm. And then with, uh, they brought in folks from CBS sports center to create a newsroom. And so you have yeah. these three cultures working together that absolutely did not work together. Right. And, you know, the advertising side was like standing over our shoulder going, move this here, move this there, et cetera. And the sports center people are like, we got to get this out. We're on deadline because they're used to, you know, we've got to drop this and got to scoop all the other news people. And luckily I was in the engineering group with engineers who trusted me and they mm. were like, we're not going to move this. Have you gotten this approved through Aaron? And yeah. so I had a lot of support during, I mean, it was very frustrating for other people, but we had to do a lot of education for these other groups because this was the beginning. Nobody knew what this was. Nobody yeah. knew why design and interaction design and user experience design mattered because it wasn't seen as a differentiator yet. Yep. You raise a great point about the need to build those relationships mm -hmm. over time so that you have the trust of uh, the um, of your fellow engineers and designers and researchers and everyone who makes this happen because UX is necessarily a team sport. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. Let's dig into your chapter. Follow these principles of Gestalt for better UX. Tell us about that, please. Oh, awesome. I love Gestalt. So Gestalt principles are often taught to graphic designers, but not necessarily folks practicing UX design. And Gestalt, if you want to look that up, uh, the Oxford Language Dictionary defines it as an organized whole that's perceived as more than the sum of its parts. And it's a set of principles that were developed and codified by a, a group of different psychologists at the turn of the century. And they were looking at um, how perception affects how people understand the world around them. And so these principles essentially help us understand how people make meaning to the things that they are seeing. And so as a designer, we can leverage that perceptual understanding and create more meaningful and useful experiences by taking a look at these different principles and applying them to our designs. And what that does 
is we leverage what's already happening in someone's brain and you know how their eyes and their brain are interpreting what they're seeing. And we can leverage that in order to help people better understand what to do and how to work controls, how to understand the content that might be on a page that's grouped together. And that means we don't have to work as hard as designers trying to explain everything. Right. Yeah, it sounds like that's the uh, microcosm of, of UX for visual space perception. You know, in UX, we're always trying to leverage the strengths of the brain and bolster the weaknesses. And what we're talking about here is specifically for that visual perception and leveraging our innate capabilities to uncover understanding and meaning. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people automatically group things together if they're close. And so we can simplify their need to have to deconstruct what something means by grouping things together that should be together. And and we can use it, use these principles to infer uh, affordances for how things work. And um, so it's not just the visual, it's also to help uh, folks understand the workings, um, so an example I like to share with my students, uh, I teach interaction design history as well as visual design, is um, during World War II, there were a lot of plane crashes that happened and they uh, attributed a lot of those to pilot error. And there was a researcher who was looking into this named Alphonse Chapanis. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. It's C H. A-P-A-N-I-S, seems French. And he basically showed that the pilot error could be reduced by redesigning the cockpit for a more intuitive design. And what he had seen was that the controls for the flaps and the landing gear looked exactly the same. Mm-hmm. They were grouped together, they looked identical, and in the split second decisions, people were picking the wrong control and they were crashing. And so he changed the shape of the the uh, controls and the placement so that they no longer looked like they went together, they no longer looked the same, and that cut down on these crashes. And Paul Fitz, a lot of us have heard of Fitz Law and that uh, notion that the, the smaller something is and the farther away it is from where you start, the less likely someone is going to be successful at um, selecting that thing. And Paul Fitz was doing similar research. And he was looking at if we organize and optimize the design by grouping things by type and meaning, and basically he's thinking about the Gestalt principles, then we could reduce errors. And you can apply this to controls in a user experience, to button groupings, to you think about settings, that's you know really full of all kinds of things that can be grouped. And by pulling these things together, we automatically tell people without words that they have similar meaning or they go together or have a similar action or interaction. Yeah. And it's uh, there's there's a bunch of sub principles under this sort of larger principle around grouping. It's things like similarity. So if things are designed in a similar way, then we can infer that they will work in a similar way. If they are closer together, then we can infer that they have a similar meaning or a similar type of understanding. If 
things move all at the same time. You know, we call that common fate. So like if you grab a bunch of things on your desktop and move them, we infer that they're all going to move in the same direction yep. and things like that. So uh, figure ground things. Uh, we use that a lot with pop-ups and modals and, and stuff like that, where uh, parts of the screen are pushed back and other parts are brighter. And that is using the concept of figure ground. So there's all these visual uh, principles in this Gestalt family that we can take advantage of when we're designing. Are there ones that um, you see employed more than others and that we're better at using, you know, in our minds that we, that we use more often? I think uh, similarity is one that either people really get or they totally don't get. Hmm. And I, I mean, designers, not people, not general people, because I often see novice designers like using all different kinds of shapes of buttons and things like that and different colors and placing them in different places. And it's like, is, are these all intended to do the same thing? You click on it and something happens. Well, then they should be designed the same. Yeah. And I think proximity is probably the most powerful because it supports Fitz law. And, you know, we've got things that are closer together that imply groupings. We see that in how toolbars are put together in all kinds of applications and the things that are grouped together, you have an, there's an implicit understanding that they work in a similar way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one that we use all the time and we probably, and we don't even think about it. Um, But if we think about what the principle is and really that along with its law, then we can be smarter about the nuances of how these things are put together. And you know, when, um, something isn't right. Like it stands out like a sore thumb. If it's, you know, something that we're, should be in the grouping and it's off by itself, you're like, why is that over there? Or it does something different and you're like, why, you know, it, it causes a bit of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Are there other examples where you've seen newer designers um, where there were opportunities to employ the Gestalt laws? Are there examples that you can convey? I think there's one, one of the principles around symmetry and order. Like we like to organize things. We like the symmetry, that principle coupled with uh, good typography and readability and legibility can work really well together. And I think that's um, an area where the design and the visual design that I'm seeing out in the world is not as strong as it could be. I hate centered text. I don't think blocks of type should be centered because it, it reduces legibility, it creates awkward and, and, and ugly white spaces, and it just violates that idea of symmetry uh, and order. And why would you purposely design something to make it harder for people to read? It drives me crazy. <laughs> you and me both. It's one of my pet peeves. And it's more natural for our eye to go back to the same place where it was at the beginning of the line, not having to search for the beginning of the sentence. Absolutely. And the thing is, people don't read whole words. They scan and they jump and you need a landing place. And if that landing place is continuing to move, it's frustrating and you slow someone down. Um, People don't spend a lot of time on the web and on things anyway, but why would you make it harder? And, you know, a headline, that's fine to be centered, but a block of text should never be centered, especially if it's in a column. That just, that just really pushes out that, that dissidence. One of the things that I've been studying, I've been writing a book about women in the field, and I came across some work 
by a woman named Sharon Pogenpole, who is a longtime educator at Illinois Institute of Technology and then was at the Hong Kong University Interaction Design. And she had been working with another designer educator named Jin Suk Kim, thinking about time in animation within the Gestalt principles, like closeness of time and similarity of motion and proximity of motion. There's not a lot written about it, but I really think given how how robust our ability to do interactions and animations is, that that's something that should be considered as a, to be added to the suite of these principles from you know the early 20th century. That's a great point. Uh, and, and, and also when you consider service design, Right? Mm-hmm. There's a temporal aspect to service design where you do one thing and there's time passes and you may interact somewhere else. That's still gestalt. There's still a connection there that you want the user to have. Absolutely. I hadn't even thought about it for service design, but that is so true. That closeness of time and that immediacy of if this happens, you want to follow up with this other thing that's related. And um, so you could use these principles in less physical, less tangible types of experiences. Yeah. So we're just about out of time here, uh, Aaron. Was there anything else that you were hoping to convey here at the podcast? I think everyone should double down and learn these principles. You know, I'm a big pattern library person. One of the last principles that uh, is in the, in the suite of principles is this notion of past experience. People come to the thing that you're designed with past experiences and you want to leverage that. And that's what the pattern libraries do as well, is leverage that communal learning across a suite of experiences and over time and support that. I think we would do well to have basics of Gestalt be taught to every single UX designer out there. Agreed, 100%. It helps us set those expectations, which mm-hmm. is the whole point of UX. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think our visual design would get better along the way, too. Great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's been, it's been great chatting with you. Well, thank you. It's been, uh, it's been great to be able to talk about some of these ideas and concepts. My guest today has been Aaron Malone, who wrote the chapter, Follow These Principles of Gestalt for Better UX. Thanks for listening, everyone. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.